top of the morning, everybody. How are you guys doing this morning? See, you're a little down. Pacquiao lost. That's why you're down. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm a little melancholy myself, so let's all pray. All right, so let's go ahead and do it. Jesus, man, I thank you for the fact that you are life, and, and I pray that today as we continue uh, walking through this, this letter that Peter gave to a group of Christians going through a hard time, uh, that uh, we will realize that, that we can experience abundant, true, satisfying, joy-filled life even in the midst of the challenges that surround us. And so I, I pray that as we continue through our series that as we are faced with things that call us to actions or attitudes or responses that are, are difficult, that require uh, an allegiance to you and a submission to your spirit and a love for your word, as, as we do that, that we will really believe that in doing those things and obeying your word, that there is deeper, more abundant life from that as opposed to it somehow robs us of life. And so I, I pray that we will uh, believe your word to produce that hope and joy in us through obedience, by the strength provided through the gospel and spirit. And so uh, I pray that you just really work uh, in us today in that way, that you would show up big within our minds and hearts so that we embrace fully what you have for us. And so uh, we ask you to do this in your good and kind name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible or you have an app, please open up to the book of 1 Peter. We are going to be starting off in chapter 3 this morning of 1 Peter. And I want to remind you, as you are on your way there, that this is an unfolding argument of Peter's. And so, while we have... Um, broken it down and gone slow, right? So we're kind of hitting his topical chunks. All of these topics are connected to a bigger picture that Peter has. And so he's made it to that point in his letter that he is helping Christians to understand how they are to live out the, the virtues of the gospel in the practical affairs of life. And so he's hit different topics. At the Titan level, he's hit society at large. Right? So he said, in the context of culture, honor the people around you. Have this generosity of spirit because of the gospel. So that's the titan level. From there he goes to the big level, which is then you show honor toward government. And this is how the gospel changes things. From there he became a little bit more intimate, brought it to the medium level with occupation and work. And he says, this is how we bring the gospel to bear and its virtues in the context of labor, whatever that might look like. And now this morning, and for the next two weeks, he will become even more intimate still by focusing on the atom that builds all of society, which is the family, particular marriage, wives and husbands. Right? And, and as we go down that road, I, I think it's important for the next two weeks to really kind of step back and say, all right, what I'm looking at here is, again, how the gospel changes everything. I've said that for the last few weeks, and I'm sincere about that, that the gospel is not just this thing so that I can have this personal, supernatural, spiritual relationship to God that doesn't affect everything around me. No, the gospel is designed to have radical reclamation of all things. 
It's reclaiming culture. It's reclaiming government. It's reclaiming uh, marriage and work and everything that we are seeing in Peter's particular letter. This is exactly what God seeks to do. He's restoring Eden in this way. And so we want to pay careful attention to this and go, okay, so what does it say then in relationship to this? And, and where I think this is valuable is because uh, marriage has a profound impact on most of us in this room. How many of you are married if you're in this room? That's a few hands. Welcome to Duval. All right, so um, how many of you hope to be married someday? There's a good number of hands there too. That's a pretty good split. And, and so with that, uh, I would have to say that almost everybody in this room at some level is looking at the topic of marriage, and that is a profound topic to look at, especially because everybody that just raised their hand, they would all acknowledge that what they would love in marriage is to be happily married. And there are a lot of books and seminars and uh, television shows and the like, radio programs, all designed to help you be happily married. The challenge seems to be, for all the resources we have today, more than any time in human history, we have resources on being happily married. The challenge seems to be that many people are not. Uh, many people struggle to experience a consistent happiness in the context of marriage. And I think part of what drives that at times is that we have a, a, a misinformed perspective on marriage. Because we're asking marriage to make me happy. And, and that brings to the table a whole series of, of uh, predisposed ideas and intentions and wants out of that union. And part of it is because our culture sets marriage up not so much to say, how can you have a holy marriage? But it sets us up at times even for failure by saying, the target is happy. As opposed to maybe the target being holy. And think about how you ended up, if you're married or you're moving towards marriage, how you ended up in pursuit of that. You said, I want a relationship. I want somebody that's going to make me feel whole and make me feel complete and make me feel wanted and make me feel safe and give me a sense of direction and purpose and joy in life. And you, you set that sight on somebody, but that somebody is just as broken as you Right? This is the nature of the human race. This is the challenge. And so you have two people that say, I want this other person to fill me up at some level or be something for me. Uh, and, and then you go into your wedding day and the rules change. And here's how they change, right? So uh, let's take you in the way, way back machine. Or for some of you, I'm going to take you in the forward machine, yet to be married. And, and, and here's what's going to happen on that day. You're going to stand before a justice of the peace or a pastor or a priest or whomever you choose. And they are going to look at you. And they're going to have you affirm a certain set of ideals. They're going to look at you and say, do you promise? Do you vow? Do you pledge to Love this person for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness or in health, forsaking all others for as long as you both shall live. And you say, yes, I will, I do, right? Now, let's be honest, on your wedding day, you don't remember a thing, all right? So, like, you have to watch the video after, like, oh, that's what I said, I guess. All right, so... Um, I just remember my feet hurt and my face was in pain from smiling the whole time. So um, 
And, and so we say something on our wedding day that is very counterintuitive to what led us to the wedding day. And here's what it is. We made a promise that said, apart from what this other person does, I promise to. Right? Do you notice that nobody ever says wedding vows to say, I promise to love, honor, and cherish better or worse, rich or poor, sickness or in health, provided that they do also. And that's our pledge. It, there's no clause in there that says, as long as they reciprocate. You could say maybe it's expected, but that's not what's promised. What's promised is this is what I will do. And you're even saying in light of if we're poor, in light of if we're fighting, in light of it's bad, in light of if they're sick, I will still hold up my end of the bargain. That's what we pledge when we get married. But like I said earlier, there, there's this other dynamic in play. It's a three-letter word that begins with the letter S. What is our three-letter word that begins with the letter S that confuses everything? Sin. Thank you. If you said sex, I was going to call you out. Um, been like, get a room, man. You know, it's like, like but I get it. It can, you know, it's 50-50. It's a risk. All right, so, yeah. But sin clouds everything because, again, when a sinful person and a sinful person come together, it's sin squared. And what they're saying on their wedding day is, I will pledge to, ready, be selfless, sacrificial. I'll go the extra mile whether they reciprocated or not. That's what we pledge. But we're still sinful creatures. And so now, through the gospel, we're really working toward getting to a place where we honor those vows in sincerity and consistency which means what we really have to do is go, go to war, not only with our own sin, but the dynamic of sin within marriage. I mean, marriage creates a sin dynamic at times in and of itself. Now, marriage is a grace of God. Marriage is a blessing given by God, but, but marriage also confronts our mo most selfish interests, right? Because when we pledge to honor and cherish and have this sacrifice and this selflessness, um, that's not just for a few weeks, right? You're saying till death do us part. That's, that's years, that's decades of perpetual selflessness if you really take seriously the vows. That's gonna be hard because again, we're self-interested creatures. All of this Peter knows, all of this the Holy Spirit knows and so the wisdom and the insight and the practicality that Peter's going to speak to over the next two Sundays is designed to deal with that, that reality. And so today, we will be speaking to the wives, or Peter is, and then next week for Mother's Day, my gift to you is to deal with the husbands on Mother's Day, all right? So, um, which is total providence, man. If I didn't get sick and have a fever a few weeks back, it wouldn't have lined up that way. Jesus says, you know what, I'm gonna give you a fever so the men can hear it on Mother's Day. That's what he did, so... Um, so we kick it off into high gear in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, likewise, which means similar to things we've already learned. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Right there, it's like, oh man, he just stepped in it. All right, so, um, right, like, like you're going to look at that and go, oh man, see, this is the Bible. The Bible is that misogynistic, sexist book. Probably a white dude wrote it, like all of that that stuff that's going to instantly cause us to go, this is archaic, this is old, the Bible is just again seeking to oppress some group. And I, I want to 
and form us a little bit because I think sometimes we, we have these notions of the Bible and, and we think that the Bible is sort of out of, stink with, out of sync with modern life or conditions. And, and I would say, no, the Bible speaks to this topic in a way that's very encouraging and very liberating. It's not enslaving and, and shackling. All right, so I want to speak to what the Bible says about men and women and how that translates into husbands and wives. Because, again, sometimes the Bible gets an unfair reputation on things. It's a little bit like last week when we were talking about slavery. We said, the, you know, people will say, the Bible condones slavery. And, and we looked at a passage that says, no, the Bible condemned anybody who would take another person uh, out of their will and force them into slavery. And that did happen in the Roman Empire on occasions. And the Bible says, that is wrong. That is sin. That needs the gospel because that is destructive. The Bible Con, does not condone slavery. In the same way people say, well, the Bible was just this misogynistic document that sought to oppress women. That's actually not at all what we see in the New Testament. In fact, I, I want to just, I'm just going to rifle through a series of passages. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. You don't have to turn. But in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says something that is radical for his day. He says something that's completely radical. He says, starting in verse 27, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right there, Paul says, the essence of all human beings has equality. The essence of all human beings, and he knows this from Genesis 1. All human beings bear the image of God. Anybody that ever tries to say that this group is better than this group, this group's more important than that group, this group is more critical than another group, Paul would say, you're, you're crazy. That is not the case. The essence of men and women are equal image bearers of God. This is what Paul knows. And this is radical to his day in the Roman Empire. They would say, no, no, masters are better than slaves, and men are better than women. Right? And, and Jews would say, we're better than Gentiles, and vice versa, Gentiles would say, the Jews are crazy, and we're right. And Paul says, no, no, wait. No, the essence, that's an equality issue. He also, in 1 Corinthians 7, says something that would have also blown people away in his day. So when people think, you know, the gospel writers weren't provocative, or the epistle writers weren't, uh, we see he is in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, starting in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, he says, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. No Roman citizen would have looked at that and said, oh yeah, I can get behind that. No way. Right? Women were kind of a form of property still. And so this idea that says, no, 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 wait, you, you're... you're you, you really have the rights of your husband as a woman or a wife would have been radical to them. So again, I, I go back to the New Testament writers were saying things that were, were, were very out of step with the biases of the day. So when people say, no, the Bible is just biased, they say, no, the Bible is very liberating on this topic. In Ephesians chapter 5, what we do see is that the Bible acknowledges that there are differences between the husband and the wife, right? So it's not purely egalitarian in the sense that says, oh, well, you're both so much the same, you're just the same. The Bible affirms that no, men are wired one way and women are wired another way, and as that plays out in marriage, there's roles that play out in compatibility. It's not two knives 
dueling for control, but it's a knife and a fork that works together in harmony, in compatibility for a common greater goal, right? That's the operation. And in Ephesians chapter 5, it's really in light of that that then Paul begins to speak to kind of how this plays out a little bit. And I'm not going to get into all of it, but I want to highlight a couple of things that are important. He says in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So he's saying, in the disposition of the Christian faith, what the heart of a Christian wife should be is, verse 22, to do this. But then he goes to verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So to the wife, there is a call to submission. To the husband, there is a call to sacrifice. So the idea that says, oh, so this is just about the husband having control and having dominance. The last time I checked, to lay down your life in sacrifice isn't exactly the path of dominance. It's not. So when we talk about what does the Bible say about husbands and wives and men and women and putting all of this into context, it's important for us to step back and go, what what is it all saying? Right? And here's what it's saying. Wives, yes, Christianity is about submission. And husbands, yes, Christianity is about sacrifice. And you're bringing that in your compatibility in Christ. Now what I love about Paul here in Ephesians 5 and what I love the Holy Spirit doing through him is acknowledging that in the context of husbands and wives, there are some soft spots that that sometimes, uh, because of the sin of the two people trying to come together, uh, need to be addressed, right? And so in verse uh, 33, it says, Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, what I have found, Ellen and I do a lot of premarital counseling we do postmarital uh, counseling at times. And, and what we find consistently in most marriages is that these are the soft spots. Right? Where a husband, when the marriage is kind of going off the rails a little bit, will feel disrespected by his wife. That's a very consistent theme that we experience. You know, I just feel like she's on to me and I never do anything right. And I just don't feel respected and I'm frustrated and I get angry because I don't feel respected. And, and, and 2,000 years ago, the Bible writers knew that this would be the problem because it's always been the problem this is a part of the challenge of two sinful people trying to be one flesh sometimes this is going to be the result likewise what we find often is wives will say i just don't feel like he listens i don't feel like he cares i don't feel like he pays attention i feel like he's detached and disconnected and doing his own thing i just don't feel loved by him i feel like we're just roommates i don't feel like he likes the investment he doesn't want to take me on dates he doesn't want to just sit and and talk and i don't feel loved so 2,000 years ago, Paul, knowing this, says, here's the challenge. And this is how we respond in likeness of the gospel. Now, ultimately, back before he makes all these arguments about husbands and wives, he says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says that all of Christianity is about submission. He then just breaks it down into how a wife can do it one way and a husband does it another way, all the way coming back to then how a wife can respect, how a husband can love, and that brings unity and harmony within the marriage. Right? So, so I say all of that to highlight the fact that when the Bible speaks to this, it's, it's not trying to say that somebody's in subjugation to somebody else. It's not saying that. It's saying all of Christianity is about what? The greatest or the least, the first or the last. Who is the greatest? The servant of all. This is true to marriage. It's true to marriage for both husbands and wives. We just do it a little bit differently. 
and this is the compatibility. So when Peter's writing about this, I don't want us to start getting too locked down and say, oh, see, this is just about holding somebody down. It's not that at all. It's about both husbands and wives lifting one another up through selflessness, the very vows we made anyway. Right? That's the heart that Peter has, right? And so listen to his context a little bit more. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see that you are respectful and have pure conduct. Instantly, there's a number of things right here I want to highlight. First, I want to highlight that this is about husbands and wives. It's not about men and women. In other words, it can't be like every woman relates to every man this way. This is about how a wife is relating to her husband. That is the first thing you have to notice. The second thing is that this is a verse to wives. It is not a verse to husbands. I.e., if any husband looks at his wife and says, that's right, honey, you need to submit, punch him in the face. All right, because it's not his verse. It's not his verse. All right, men, husbands, this is not the verse that we get to use. This is Peter saying to wives, this is what the gospel would, would call you to in this kind of circumstance. The third thing that you want to notice is how this happens. It says they are to choose this idea of submitting. It, it doesn't use the Greek word for obey. Children obey, which is awesome, all right? Um, here it says wives submit, and we've already dealt with this word submission. It's a willful surrendering of one's impulses to a greater good. Right? It's like a soldier that submits to a commanding officer. It's like an employee that submits to an employer for the greater good. It's a, it's a choice in this sense. And notice the context of it. When a husband doesn't obey the word. So now, again, like I said, you have uh, sinful husband, sinful wife. Wife wants to live her life with the virtues of the gospel in relationship to a husband that is not wanting to live out. The virtues of the gospel. Maybe the husband isn't a believer. Maybe the husband is a believer in choosing to disobey God's word. Whatever it is, Peter's now saying, man, I know this is hard, ladies. I know this is going to be a challenge. It's just as challenging as dealing with a sinful culture, a sinful government, and a sinful boss. Now you're dealing with a sinful husband. What is the best, most practical, God-honoring, gospel-centered route to go forward? He says, this is the route. Now again, I get it that some of you may be married to a man that is absent or is frustrating or challenging, right? Where you go, man, we're together, but we're not together. Um, we're more like roommates and he kind of does his own thing and I wish he would be more attentive and he's not. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that that isn't hard. Peter's context is a hard situation. We're not taking away from the hardness we, we hurt with you as it's hard. We want to pray with you and for you as it's hard. So again, like everything else we've dealt with in First Peter, Peter's dealing with the hard of life, and he's giving wisdom to the hard things in life. And it's in this, what he's saying is, when it's hard, when you feel like they're detached, don't listen, whatever else, he goes, it's going to be really tempting to inform them of how much they're letting you down. It's going to be very tempting to compare to criticize, 
to become within the marriage almost very litigious. Maybe you're not doing this in, in a little court, but you might start to have that same kind of attitude within the marriage. You might begin to overstate a lot of things to your husband that he always and he never and others do and you don't and you're just like your dad and all, you know, like all those things that can happen. He says, man, that's, that's understandable. But that route is not the route to healing in the way that you might think. And this is where it's hard. I think this comes back to wiring, right? Women are wired so different on average than men when it comes to verbal interaction. Women are verbal ninjas, right? You're verbal ninjas, and, 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 and you're, you're, you're quick, you're, you're like, a, like a processing mind, and you can cross-pollinate all of these ideas, and the words can flow fast, and so you're like crouching tiger, hidden dragon, you're like dancing across the treetops, and you know, with all these words, you're amazing that way, it's a huge strength, but most men are like Paul Blart mall cop, you know, it's like, we're, we're paced very differently in this realm. Right, And so, so what it is, is when the volley begins to come, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the husband isn't an heir. What I'm saying is an errant husband, a sinning husband. Um, when he's in that state, and you go, well, I can correct this through a lot of verbal exchange. The reality is that most men, as soon as it comes, they're not thinking in terms of, I need to absorb all of this and kind of understand it and pry it apart and get it. I'm going to lay it all on the table. I'm going to calmly look and see how the pieces all fit, right? (laughs) I wish it worked that way. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. We get lost fast. We get lost spooky fast because you all are making links that we don't even, we don't even know they're links, right? So he's in bed, he's on his iPad, you know, it's already been kind of swelling up a little bit. You walk in and he left his underwear on the floor. And you just go, and you grab him. All he heard was you expressed air. That could be anything, right? And then you go, um, did you help Junior with his homework tonight? Oh, no, I meant to do that. All right, this happens all the time. I need you to change my oil. Last week you didn't do it. I need you to clear out the garage. You never take me out on dates anymore. Are these your underwear? And like, and the guy's just like, I heard air. She's holding underwear, and somehow that's about homework and oil in a garage. I... <laughs> now, the underwear and the date thing, I can link somehow, but I can't, you know, like, like, I mean, right? I mean, this is just, this is just the truth of it, right? And, 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 and to us, these guys were like, so is, if I would have just picked up my underwear, would this have not happened? You know, like, because like, we, don't, we don't fully get it. Because we're, we're not, we don't have that kind of same verbal architecture. We don't have that same processing. And so what, it, what is true to all of this is that when a wife says, I, 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 it's built up and, and I just need to express it. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to say in and of itself that things don't build up and they don't need expression. I'm going back to the practicality that, that Peter's dealing with. He's saying, hey, I want you to see resolution, but here's the best route to it. And if it just sort of swells and builds and comes out, as soon as it's underwear, homework, oil, garage, no dates lately, disconnected, you know, all of that, then the guy's like, 
I've got seven things to solve, and it feels like an attack. It doesn't feel like information. It feels like an incursion. And I don't know what to do with that, and so what a guy does is just either shuts down or gets frustrated or does what a typical guy does, which is just, ah, that's all we got. All right, so, like, because we, we don't know what to do with everything. And, and, and Peter knows this, and so he speaks to this, right? And he's saying, listen, where, where, where a lot of words begin to come, a lot of challenges come with that. In fact, it reminds me of Proverbs chapter 10. It says in chapter 10, verse 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Men, you can't laugh right there. Don't do that. Like, I heard some guys go, don't. That's like the underwear game. Don't. All right? Um, why did you laugh at that? Right? So you're looking for trouble. Um, right? But, but, but there, there's real truth in there. Right? Because like I said, when, when, it, when it builds up, and all these things are in your heart and mind, and you're feeling hurt as a wife, which is totally understandable. Again, your husband may not be abiding by the word. You're feeling hurt. I'm not denying that. But then if it comes out as the verbal ninja words of ladies, right, and it begins to kind of overwhelm, you might say, well, I'm just trying to be constructive in my criticism. But all the husband's going to hear is criticism, because we're, 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 we're kind of designed to kind of fight or flight real quickly. You know, this is why if you get in an argument with your husband and then you feel like he gets angry very quickly, it's just because he feels disrespected very quickly. Right? This is what he will struggle with. And so, again, where the more the words build up, more little things get said in there. Right? And, and that's always going to be the challenge. Now, you might say, well, I'm just trying to make my point. Right? And... and, and Yet what Peter would be saying is, well, I want to help you make a difference. Because every time a husband feels like he loses the argument, right, it, 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 it just whittles a little bit more of his, um, his potential for being connected to you, which is what you really want anyway. Right? But that's what you really want. You want your husband to be connected to you. You want him to be attentive to you. But every verbal kind of exchange or battle in which he loses, and again, men are good at losing the verbal battle because, again, we're not always moving as swiftly and processing as much and multitasking and cross-pollinating and all the things that can happen in an argument. Um, it can build uh, almost a type of resentment over the course of time where the guy either just shuts down or ducks or just takes the dive in the first round because it's easier. But it won't mean that he's more connected, right? And, and so these words of saying where there are many words, man, there can be a lot of sin. Some of that is even sins that we don't fully understand. Right? And so this is where we want to take these things to heart and say, okay, what's, what's expected? expected of us, especially because um, what can happen uh, when, when perhaps a wife, and, and a lot of this is true for men too in the sense of men, we should learn from the communication stuff on this because we still have to communicate and sometimes we don't do so, so well. And so we want to learn, all of us. Uh, but part of this is when you feel the buildup and things aren't falling together right, you begin to formulate the argument in your mind. That's why it comes so quickly with the underwear, right? And everything, you formulated it. And you're probably thinking about it a lot. You keep formulating the problem, and after a while, you're like kind of preaching to yourself, and after a while, you begin to amen yourself, right? Like, yeah, that's right. That's a good point. Thank you, honey. I'm amazing. You know, like, like 
right? So that can happen, and, and in that you might lose wisdom for the volley of words. And James understands this. In fact, it's just one of those things that kind of hit me this week, and so I thought, and this is, this is valuable for us to, to realize. In James chapter 3, it starts in verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show works in the meekness of wisdom. And again, we learned about meek last week. Strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is taking strength and honing it for the greatest good. Right? That, that's what it is. And so we want the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false against the truth. Now, this is a much bigger category, but even in the context of marriage, there can be these times where you do begin to feel a bit jealous. You do become a bit embittered because of selfishness in relationship to all of this. It's not just purely about helping your guy get on track, but it's also kind of letting your guy know that he hurt you and you want him to hurt a little bit because he hurt you. Right? So that, that can be in there. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Uh, what is true, and again, having done a lot of marriage counseling, is uh, what is always obvious in the first meeting is the level of disorder. I mean, it's just a level of disorder. They're out of sync and out of joint, and they're saying that. We're just not connected at all. Everything is kind of crazy and in chaos. And a lot of that is because there's been a lot of exchange of words. Or there's been a lot of silent treatment, which is another type of exchange of a word, right? And, and all of that is often not driven by wisdom, but by, by, by a sense of selfish interest. I know I pledge to love, honor, and cherish for better, worse, richer, poor, sickness, and health as long as we both shall live. But that person's a dipstick right now. And so, it's hard for me to do that. And maybe I'm not always doing it so well. And this is true to every marriage, Every marriage is going to have these seasons. Now, I know there might be like a couple in this room right now. They're like, we just got married last week. We don't know what you're talking about. I'll give you two more weeks. All right? So, because it's going to be true to all. There's going to be seasons of disruption. There's going to be seasons where we're not on the same page. There's going to be seasons where self-interest seeps in instead of selflessness. And when those seasons happen, those seasons occur, then we need true biblical wisdom. So in verse 17 of James chapter 3, he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I mean, these are the dispositions of wisdom in our communication. And so whether you be a wife or be a husband in the realm of communication, we should say, I want wise communication, not just words, but wisdom in my words, and when that's the case, uh, communication is going to flourish because there are those dispositions like being open to reason, full of mercy, gentle. It's, it's looking at your husband as a wife and saying, you know what, yes, he's making poor decisions, or he's not connected, or he's not engaged, or he's not whatever he might be doing, and how can I communicate or operate with him in such a way that he knows I'm gentle, that I'm full of mercy, that I'm wanting to be reasonable, and, and let me add to that, reasonable as he processes, right? Because that's part of it, right? You're thinking in terms of how does a man process, which is so different than me I, as a woman, right? You go, I know it's different than me, but I want to process as he processes. 
Because my heart here is to see him back in alignment with what is healthy and right and God-honoring, right? That, that's going to be the heart. And so this is why Peter is saying what he's saying to us. This is why James is saying what he's saying to us. In fact, even Proverbs 15, 1 and 2, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, and men do have anger management problems. They do. I'm not saying they don't, because they feel disrespected, they're going to have an anger management problem. In fact, it's not a management problem, they fail to manage, it's just angry, right? So a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pours out folly. And so this is why Peter is saying, wives and your words are so critical, right? So important. Now he's going to say some things to husbands next week that are just as critical, but to the wives, he says, please watch your words. And why does he say this? Again, it goes back to, he says, that they may be one without a word. Right? That they may be one without a word. Because what's the goal? You want to win them over. You want them to be different. You want them to respond to you as Christ would have them respond. So he says, man, do this. Though Even though they do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. We've read this a couple of times this morning already, but it's, it's so important because, again, it's not saying that you don't see the problem clearly. You, you do, realistically. It's not saying that you couldn't formulate an argument to express the problem clearly. You can, right? But what Peter is saying is that many men, um, or at least for many men, actions speak louder than words. Right? Actions speak louder than words. And, and the more you have those actions, it actually gives you the credibility then for some words that are wise words and encouraging words and guiding words. I don't think Peter is truly going wholesale and say, just zip it. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, you know what, um, there is a sacred influence. There's even a book called Sacred Influence. And there's a sacred influence that a wife has in relationship to a husband because men are relatively simple. I believe men are uniquely loyal. We even see this tragically in the realm of divorce. 90% of divorces are pursued by females, not males. 90%. Right? So, uh, the, the, and that's in the collegiate graduated professional realm of life, right? So uh, it's a little bit lower if you're white collar and never went to college, but not by much. It's like 80% or 75%. Mostly women pursue this. What you find is that men are, are relatively simplistic in their desire for loyalty. But when a, when a wife comes alongside when she sees a problem and is an encouragement and is living out her faith and is prayerful and biblical and sensitive and exercising true meekness, which is strength and control, and then brings wise words to heal the problem. Men, are, I find, on average, are very receptive. There are occasions where they're not, and maybe that's where somebody else, like an elder of the church or somebody needs to step in and talk to a man and say, dude, what's going on here? But oftentimes, that is going to be the best, most helpful route to solving the dilemmas, right? And that's what we want. We want the solution. Especially since I'm saying men are kind of primed to be defensive. I, I can even say as a personal testimony, um, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but only once in my marriage have I ever been a bad guy. Um, well, what I meant was once a week. All right, so... Um, and, and, and I guarantee you, when there are, have been those seasons that Ellen and I would agree 
um, that I wasn't really very focused on Christ. I wasn't really walking in the Lord, and I was making decisions or having an attitude or whatever else that just wasn't pleasing to Christ. Uh, I was never won by an argument. I was never won by an argument. It was the opposite, and Ellen is really great about this. She takes 1 Peter 3 seriously in such a way that when I'm really in a bad space, she knows the best thing she can do is pray, be God-honoring, doing those kinds of things, and that that's going to get my attention because her life just seems happier than mine when she's in that place. Her life seems more stable than mine when she's in that place. And then I watch that, and that gives her then leverage to speak into my life in a wise way that then causes me to go, man, I want to get back on track. Now, I know some will say, no, no, we've been married a long time, and, you know, my, my man is motivated by me getting on to him. <laughs> I'm telling you, because if I don't get on to him, underwear staying on the floor, if I don't get on to him, he's just going to do his own thing. If I don't get on to him, he's not going to respond. If I don't get on to him, we're going to be in the poorhouse. If I don't get on to him, he's never going to give me attention. And I go, you're right. You can get on to a guy so much that you exasperate him and he does whatever he want, you want him to do. But as I said earlier, it doesn't endear him to you. It exasperates him. And he says, it's just easier to do it. But deep down inside, he doesn't feel more attached he just feels like, I just got to buffer this. At least I get to go to work in the morning. Honestly, that's what can happen, right? And so there, again, is sensitivity. More words don't create solution. More writing doesn't necessarily do it. I mean, even if you look at Peter, he has six verses for women and only one for men. This is, this is in part because he knows, like, Guys can only handle a verse, you know, like, like, like I want to interact with women. We're very communicative. Peter's like very like getting his lady on, you know, like, all right, let's all talk about it. We'll have tea and talk. And like verses one through six. And then he gets to verse seven. He's like, uh, guys, all right, here, do this, 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 this. Cool? Yeah. All right. Move. All right. Like it's that way. Right? Because, again, this goes back to this idea of men and communication and bandwidth. I have two daughters and a son. It is so funny. When there's a, when a problem in their lives, right? Like Ellen and I laugh about this because if it's, if it's uh, gray, my son, after like 10 minutes, you just know like this kid's like, I'm, 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 just, I'm just making paper airplanes in my head now. And, you know, like you've lost me after 10 minutes. More words are not getting me down the road. Where with my daughters, like I'll cycle through once and I'll be like, we're done, right? And they're like, no, we need to talk about it more. What? Cycle through again. Done, right? No, no. Cycle through again. You know, and I'll look at Ellen like, I've said it three times. She goes, I know, but it takes about three more. Just keep going. You know, and like, (laughs) but what are we processing? And it's like, well, it's in layers. It's not linear. It's like this thing. It's three-dimensional. It's like, you know, I'm like, all right, honeys, all right, what do I, what do we need to know now? Right? So again, it's just the processing level is, is different. And so, as a Christian woman wanting to display gospel grace to a husband who doesn't obey the word, what do you do? He says, don't let your adorning merely be external. And the ESV doesn't say merely. Uh, The NASB says merely. They're trying to kind of highlight that it's not some giant. This is, in other words, this isn't like a verse that says, ah, proof text for that whole dilemma of like yoga pants. It's not that. All right? So... (laughs) 
It's just not that, all right? So do not let your adorning merely be external, all right? The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be of the hidden person of the heart with uh, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Again, the heart of this is not trying to say um, it's wrong to have an emphasis on fitness or appearance or whatever. He's not saying that's wrong. What he's saying is what is more important is scripture and prayer and uh, trusting in God, faith, fortitude, grace, those kinds of things. He's saying make sure that that's where the investment is. It's very easy in our world to think that three, verse three, is more important than verse four. It's very easy for us as Christians, men or women, to focus on the external world more than the internal conditions of the soul. And even to say that has higher value at times in our environment or culture. And Peter says, man, don't do that. I mean, it's great that you care about your parents. It's important to care about what God has given to you and be a good steward of that. But more important, more time, more attention, more investment should be put into this internal composite of one's heart. That's where real joy is. That's where real strength is. That is where real virtues are honed and fortified. It's in that realm of the heart. The heart is the home of the intellect, of the emotion, of the will. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, out of the abundance of one's heart, the mouth will speak. This is in part why he's addressing it. It's not just, I need to get control over what I say. More importantly, the Bible would say, we need the heart informed or shaped. The heart is like a child that needs direction and discipline and and a sense of honing. If we just kind of leave our heart uninformed by scripture and spirit, uh, the heart's going to react, right? It's going to feel a certain way. It's going to be frustrated by certain conditions. And it's going to react when things finally kind of hit their boiling point and goes everywhere. And so we want to go, man, the heart needs to be dealt with. The heart needs to be informed and informed in a very particular way in Ephesians chapter 4. I just read this this week. and I thought, Man, this is so fitting to the message. Paul is telling Christians, man, put off your old self in verse 22. He says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. When we get frustrated, we get a lot of desires in there. Some of those can be deceitful where we go, no, I'm making a good point. And it's like, no, 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 you're making a good argument. It's not necessarily a good point because it's not going to lead to solution. It's going to lead to confusion. So don't be driven by those, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm irritated, I'm tired. Don't be given into those deceitful desires, but be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Right? This is where it goes back to, all right, what are wise words? Let's talk about James 3. How should I communicate? Let me go back to Proverbs. What does a wife do to really connect with her husband? Ephesians 5. What does a husband do to really sacrifice for his wife? Ephesians 5. Right? What is a husband called to? 1 Peter 3, 7. Right? All, all of that is true. So we're, I'm going to be informed in the mind by truth, believing that God will bless, and he's given the grace and gospel and spirit to do it. So you're going, I believe God has given what is necessary to be able to do this and to seek him in these ways. And so that, again, is Peter's heart. He says, man, focus on the internal, informed by scripture, informed by spirit, Informed by prayer, fortified in those things, let the heart be shaped. He says, here's why. Because that stuff is imperishable. Right? Doesn't need Botox, man. 
It's imperishable, never fades, never withers, doesn't have wrinkles, doesn't have varicose veins, right? Doesn't turn gray. It's imperishable. In fact, it goes beyond this life. It's eternal. He says these things are perishable. More than that, he says they're beautiful, right? And they're beautiful because they're rare. Rare things are beautiful things. And this is rare. And what is so rare? He says, a quiet and gentle spirit, that is what is beautiful. That is what is imperishable. And really, that is what is rare. We live in a culture that celebrates loud and aggressive. Just across the board. We love loud and aggressive. Loud and aggressive gets things done. Loud and aggressive pushes your way. Loud and aggressive puts other people on notice. But Peter says here, man, quiet and gentle, that is really beautiful in the sight of God. That stuff is imperishable. That stuff is different. That is holy. Holy means uncommon. Says that's the stuff to highlight. In fact, even in Matthew chapter 11, this is how Jesus is characterized. Why were so many people of so many backgrounds attracted to Jesus? Because in his way, he was beautiful in these contexts. So again, Peter gives this encouragement, and most importantly, he says, in God's sight, it is very precious. P- part of this, what it comes down to, is saying, I'm going to interact with my husband this way, um, not because it's going to be easy, not because it's always going to go my way. The husband may continue to stay in rebellion. He may continue to not obey the word. He may continue to spiritually be inferior to where you're at in your walk. All those things may be true. And what Peter's saying, but you know what? God is watching. And you have to believe that not only is he watching, but he delights in what you do. That he takes great pleasure in that. So what you have to do is look at this passage and and say, if he, your husband, does not listen, he, your God, does. If he, your husband, is detached, he, your God, is not. If he, your husband, is unwilling, he, your God, was so willing for you, he gave himself for you. If he, your husband, is unresponsive, God will reward. He is paying attention. You have to believe that. You have to believe that. And that's true of any hardship. This whole series of sections we've looked at in culture, in government, in work, in marriage, you have to say the he's of this world may not care, but the he who reigns supreme always cares and always rewards. That's what we have to do. And all of this, so that's the faith of this. In fact, that's exactly where Peter goes. He says in verse 5, For this is how the women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. This is what I love about this, because it says they they would submit to their husbands, but who did they hope in? It says they hoped in God. Your hope isn't in your dude. Your dude will let you down. Your God will not. Your, Your dude will fail. Your dude will be inconsistent. Your God is not. So these women didn't just kind of blindly submit themselves to their husbands. They open-eyed, willfully trusted their God. And then Peter uses an example. He says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Hey, Ellen. Ah, there it is. Just giving you an example that you may follow in. All right. Um, now, now, some of you are going to be like, 
very, okay, I, I'm willing to like not say something at first. I'm willing to do the, I'm not calling him Lord, all right? Not happening. Let, let me give you some perspective here really fast, all right? Um, this is just a word of encouragement. In the same way that a husband should say to his wife, you're a queen. A wife should say to her husband, you're a king. In the same way that words can build up and therefore inspire people, or words can tear down and withdraw people, these are just encouraging words. It really isn't like, Lord. It's not like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, hey, honey, what's for breakfast? She's like, well, my Lord, here. You know, it's not, <laughs> though that would be sweet. All right, so, <laughs> so just a thought. All right, um, but in the same way, like, you know, this week, you know, I went to Ellen and I said, you know what, I'm just blessed. I mean, you're just, you're smart, you're ambitious, you're kind, you're godly. I, I'm just a blessed guy, right? Everybody in this room would say, that's the right stuff to say, right? And mean it. And in the same way, a wife is to look at her husband and say, you know, you're great, you're, you're helpful, you're attentive, you're, you're inspiring, right? That's what this is all about. And it's inspiring when things aren't always easy or going well. Because I want you to, again, notice the example. As Sarah called her husband Lord. Now, the whole context of 1 Peter 3 is a husband who doesn't obey the word. So we're going to jump back really quick and think of a couple of times with Abraham and his wife where Abraham didn't obey the word. Both were on occasions where Abraham's like, ah, oh, we're passing through a region. And he looks at his wife and says, and you are turbo hot. And because you are turbo hot, people are going to be attracted to you. And when they are, just tell them you're my sister. Like, like that is not a good idea, right? Like, what wife is going to be like, you're not going to tell them I'm your wife? I'm your sister? <laughs> Idiot, right? Um, but you know what she does? All right. And so that's the whole thing. And here's her attitude. Her attitude isn't, oh, I think my husband's making a good decision by saying I should say I'm his wife. That's not what she's doing. Abraham says, uh, say you're my sister, not my wife. And what she is doing, in essence, is saying, I could say something, but I think I'll duck and let God hit him instead, right? And so that's all she's doing. Because again, as the women of old, right, who put their hope in God, she puts her hope in God and says, you know what, God can punk him way easier than I can, right? So without a word, I'm gonna step back and when we get there and they say, who's the hottie? It's my sister. She'll be like, yeah? And, and, and both times this happens, that's exactly what happens. God adjusts it, right? Now, what's interesting, there's only one occasion where she actually calls her husband Lord. And here's, here's what I want to say before I get to this story. Um, I'm not saying that when, when you have this attitude that says, all right, I'm going to win them without a word. I'm going to trust God through prayer. Uh, I, I'm going to have the spirit in which I want to encourage with encouraging words, even when he's being foolish. This doesn't mean that in your mind you're not thinking to yourself, like, you've got to be kidding. Right? Like, my husband is reaching the heights of dipstickedness here. Uh, I mean, you can, you can think that. You can even kind of like, man, Lord, you've got to help me because I think he's not thinking this through. You're, you're allowed to do that. Because in the context where this happens, and she refers to him, the only time it's ever referred to Sarah calling Abraham Lord, it's in a context where she's thinking something that she's like, this is downright silly. About her Lord, her husband. All right, Genesis chapter 18. And by the way, I want you to know in advance, I'm reading this mainly because it's funny. All right. 
In Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 9, three, quote, men have come to Abraham. It's God, right? And we say the other two are angels. Perhaps it's the full trinity. We're not really sure. But three come to Abraham, and they're going to say, hey, man, this is the covenant we're making with you. And so in verse 9, he said, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you in about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And so she's listening in on this, and she's like, oh, we're going to have a kid. Hmm. Verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself and said, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? What she's saying, and I know you're like, oh, what is that saying? (laughs) What she's doing, she's hearing this, and she laughs because she's older and she knows. She's sitting there just thinking this, like, let me get this straight. So Viagra Abe over there and I are going to have a baby. Like, that's what she's saying. It's like, they're just, they're, how can I have pleasure? How can he, this doesn't even, no, it's all broken. Right? So in her mind, she's laughing. She's saying, this doesn't process. But she still says, my Lord. She still wants to be respectful in a time that she doesn't fully understand. She even thinks is a little, little crazy. Right? That is the reality oftentimes in life where we go, I'm, I'm going to do what God calls me to do even though the conditions don't always make sense and it doesn't always feel uh, sane or collected or whatever else. I, I, I'm going to do what Scripture says I'm to do because that is what God is going to, to bless. No matter what the conditions. Now again, this isn't easy and Peter closes addressing that, that truth. He says, I'm going to go back to verse 5 and read it all the way through. But this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Right? So register that last part. Notice Peter doesn't close with saying, and you know what, do good and it's all going to turn out good. He says, no, you're, you're just like Abraham or Sarah's daughters if you do good and you don't fear anything that is frightening. Because again, it can be frightening sometimes because again, you can say to yourself, you know what, if, if I do this, if I honor First Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, uh, my guy will spend us into the poorhouse. My guy will detach more. My guy will be uh, more uh, unaware or uncaring. Uh, he, any number of things. If I, if I do this, there's all kinds of dangers. And, and, and you can have a sense of fear. And this is why the passage keeps saying, hope in God, trust in God, look to God, uh, fortify the heart through God so that you might have courage when things can be frightening. This is true to every Christian in every other context anyway, right? Where we look to God more than we look to the conditions. And that's exactly what is being said here. Again, I don't claim that it's going to be easy. I've talked with some in our church who are married to men that, again, can be a little bit of a handful. And I'm not talking about physical abuse, by the way. Just for the record, if you're in a condition of physical abuse, my first thing is, would you let someone know, anyone know, and remove yourself from... Physical abuse. This is not some endorsement that says, hey, stick around for that. That's a much 
broader conversation that I want to get into this morning, but I don't think that's the challenge. And most people in, in this room certainly think most of the challenges are just going to be that sense of we're not connected and we're starting to argue a lot more and, and, and what do we do? And again, there's going to be words for husbands in that situation next week, but for this morning, for wives, it's this passage here, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Trust God. Why do you do this? Proverbs chapter 3. It says in verse 25, Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked. Right? He says, don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence. The Lord will be your confidence. And so when your husband is foolish, then you pray, God, help me have my confidence in you. When he's detached, you pray, God, help me have, to have my confidence in you. When he's forgetful, God, help me to have my confidence in you. When he's disengaged, God, help me to have my confidence in you. When you feel like he doesn't even want to be invested in it, God, help me to have my confidence in you. It's a constant crying out to God, right? That's the essence. It's saying, I will not fear anything that is frightening, but I will place my hope in God, who is the hope of all things, knowing that in doing that, that is precious in his sight. Let's pray together. Jesus, these last series of weeks, I find that we're addressing things that are profoundly pertinent to lives, Right? And in every one of them, I, I, I find perhaps the, the thread is the heart of submission for the greater good. The, the heart of self-surrender and of self-sacrifice for the greater good. And, um, and that I can't help but go, man, maybe this is exactly why Peter wrote it last week. Um, I can't help but look how much that models the cross anyway. That the cross was all about your surrender, your self-sacrifice, your laying yourself down for us, and then you look at us and say, so go and likewise do the same thing. Lay yourself down for others. First and foremost, we lay ourselves down for our spouse. I pray that we would wrestle with this in right ways and in good ways, and that we would trust you, which is so hard especially when it's under roof and especially when things get tangled. It's so hard sometimes. And yet I pray that we will reflect on the cross even right now as we prepare for communion. I pray that as we take the elements and we're looking at this bread and this cup in our hand, that we will instantly be drawn back to the sacrifice, the self-surrender for the greater good, how you, you bring life by dying, how you won by something that looked like losing. How you were exalted above all because you made yourself the slave of all. And that we as your people will see ourselves in that same context. And so as we, again, take communion, I pray that we would look at it directly and say, ah, this is a symbol of what Christ has done and it is a, a model of what I am to do within my marriage. It doesn't matter if we're husbands or wives. It doesn't matter the text this week or the text next week. We are called to that, and I pray that we would do that and we would take that seriously. And in there, we would believe that we have what is necessary to accomplish it, and in that, we would know that there is joy. I pray that you would do that work in us. I pray right now as we get ready to pass the elements that we would center on 
your power of cross and resurrection to do that in our marriages and in our homes, in our lives. We seek these things in your name. Amen.